Well, welcome, everybody, um, to this lecture this evening. I'm chairing it, Professor Michael Cox from the Department of International Relations. Uh, for over 20 years, uh, I lived and worked in that contested part of the United Kingdom called Northern Ireland, or We Ulster. Anybody who knows about the place, Northern Ireland, gets to know a lot about borders. And either side of the border, there was a highly contested space that came to be known by the British Army as Bandit Country. Bandit Country. This was hostile territory, at least to the army, and stretched from a small town in Armagh called Cross Maglen, where there was a very active service unit of the IRA, now all social workers, south to a much bigger town in the Republic of Ireland, just on the other side of the border, called Dundalk. Uh, Dundalk was famous for many things. It was one of the very few industrial towns in Ireland. It was home to Fife's Bananas. I bet you didn't know that. And thirdly, it was the place where our speaker tonight, Fred Halliday, was born in 1946. And that's a long way to get to that point, isn't it? Though Fred, I should add, was not a bandit or a seller of bananas. Now, like many a good Irish lad and lassie, the young Fred did what millions of Irish have done over the centuries. He left. <laughs> In his case, to be educated or educated across the water on that rather peculiar place the British call the mainland. <coughs> First in Ampleforth, uh, described on its own web pages and website as a Benedictine school where Catholic students are offered a full religious education in the Roman Catholic faith. What you see before you is a product of that uh, educational background. Uh, Fred then went from Ampleforth on to Oxford and then to the School of Oriental and African Studies and finally to the LSE where he was awarded his, his doctorate. Now that at least was the formal side of Fred's education, I would be, I think, right to say. More important, I suspect, was the less formal side picked up uh, en route by his active involvement with the new left, uh, when it was new and when it was left, um, uh, with the highly influential journal New Left Review, uh, which was and still is in some ways highly influential, though whether it's still left is another question, and, of course, by Fred's travels to far distant places, which we once used to call the Third World. It helped, of course, that Fred was fast becoming fluent in several languages, and still remains so, though he has not yet conquered Welsh, he once admitted to me, though Fred maybe you've conquered it since. Fred, in short, began his journey not as an academic with a pension, but a public intellectual. A vast range of interests and publications, articles and books and pamphlets Possibly the most influential of the books, of which there was Iran, Dictatorship and Development in 1978, Threat from the East, Soviet Policy from Afghanistan to the Horn of Africa, and the famous, uh, The Making of the Second Cold War in 1983, published by Verso Press. Fred, in the end, came in from the cold, so to speak, though only after a struggle, I'm told, and joined the LSE in 1983. Here he has been more prolific still, with at least, as far as I can see, 15 books to his name. I know I won't go through all of them. Fred and the LSE were clearly made for each other. Fred was never less than a star. As author, as I've said, as lecturer, a great one, as public face of the LSE, and finally, as a very good citizen. 
citizen holiday. I welcome you tonight on behalf of all your friends, your LSE colleagues, and most especially on behalf of your own department, the Department of International Relations here at the LSE, to speak on international relations in a post-hegemonic age. It's, it's a great honour and privilege to welcome my old friend, dare I say comrade, Fred Halliday to speak this evening. Fred, over to you. saying in Ireland they take no prisoners and I think Cox is an example thereof um, uh, yes. he, meant, he ran a brief canter through my past and preparing for this lecture uh, I realized that my core commitment in life is to internationalism to cosmopolitanism the subject on which I gave my inaugural lecture on this stage 21 years ago uh, but at the same time uh, identities are multiple and that we all have our origins, our families, the languages we respond to. I've learned not to go to the dentist in a foreign language. not a very good idea because you get the, the, the problem wrong and they whip it out apart from anything. Um, also not to go to the hairdresser in a foreign language because they, these things get misunderstood. And in a way, I've had the good fortune to be brought up in these islands in what I would call the dissident middle classes. The, the, George Orwell talked about the colonial middle classes, the people who served the British Empire, on my father's side, they were querulous Yorkshire businessmen. My father detested the home counties. He disapproved of my getting a job in anything with the word London in it. Um, sorry was a swear word. Uh, and on his side of the family, his, the previous generation were imprisoned in the First World War in Manchester for opposing the totally unnecessary First World War, uh, which it was. On my mother's side, they're Irish Catholic nationalists, constitutional, of course, great hero was Charles Stuart Parnell, whom my grandmother met as a small child who presented with a bouquet of flowers sometime in the 1880s, and he gave her a hug, and as she gave me a hug, I feel this is a passing on of a special legitimacy. <laughs> and again, her generation, the generation before her were imprisoned in, in the First World War in the Crumlin Road in Belfast, as rooted in the history and culture of these islands as the colonial middle classes and others. Uh, but I've also had the honor of being part of, I realize, four cosmopolitan and international communities, dare I say, conspiracies. Uh, one is the London School of Economics, which is the superior social science institute of the world elite, for better and for worse, much more for better than for worse. Um, before that, I worked for 12 years for a left liberal American think tank with a base in Europe, the Transnational Institute, uh, set up by people who'd worked in the Kennedy administration, Richard Barnett, Marcus Raskin, Saul Landau and others, uh, and uh, learned a great deal from them. Starting salary as a researcher in 1972, $2,000. But I went to Cuba, I went to Yemen, I went to Ethiopia, I went over to the Soviet Union, and it was a fantastic experience. Before that was 15 years on the New Left Review, Certainly an extremely stimulating intellectual experience, not, I think, what people should be doing in their 20s uh, on reflection, but there we were, uh, and certainly a much better magazine than it has subsequently become in its bunker. And before that, of course, as Mick implied, 18 years, and the oldest cosmopolitan conspiracy of all, which is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and all of these have had their impact on me, and I'm happy to acknowledge a certain continuity in them. But I think the solution to all of this is a good modernist 
perhaps even slightly postmodernist solution, which is we have multiple identities, a British identity in my case, and I've been very happy to belong to this very British institution, uh, but also an international one. Uh, and secondly, that we are free to choose what we make of these traditions, to be colonial or to be dissident, uh, to be internationalist or to be global, uh, and that as with language and as with religion and as with an a la carte menu, we decide what definition to give on identity. We don't necessarily have it given to us. Against that background, it's a particular pleasure and honor to be speaking here this evening on what will be the last of many public lectures that I've given in this theater as professor of international relations at LSE, going back to my inaugural lecture in 1987 when I talked, as I said, on the subject of internationalism, the subject closest to my heart. It's also an occasion to thank the many LSE students, staff, and others who over the years have encouraged and helped me by criticism and by endorsement, and to acknowledge, indeed salute, the very exceptional institution which is this London School of Economics, a college quite unique in the world in the cosmopolitanism and intelligence of its student body. I have never met a boring student at LSE. Uh, in the quality of its intellectual engagement, in the involvement of its staff in the affairs of the world, and in the free, liberal, and may I emphasize, secular atmosphere of its teaching and research. To be able to sit in your office in LSE and meet in one week students from over 30 countries is itself an enormous privilege. The secret of our job is very simple, that you learn as much, probably more, from your students as they do from you. The difference is, of course, you're paid to do it. Uh, and as I said in my first lecture at uh, uh, on the Middle East at the start of this term, there is only one LSE in this world, and I hope that you and I will never forget it. It gives me particular pleasure to welcome one or two people here this evening. First of all, one of those guilty of having appointed me, Professor James Barber, uh, who has come from Cambridge this evening, who was on the committee in 1987 with I.G. Patel, and with Meghna Desai and others. Secondly, to welcome very warmly the Deputy Ambassador of Yemen, because Mr. Khaled al-Yamani, uh, who I had the pleasure of meeting on the train up to Sheffield two days ago when we went to a festival of the Yemeni community there. The Yemenis are the oldest immigrant community in Britain. They've been here 100 years, second only to the Chinese. Uh, and the Sheffield Library had put on a very impressive exhibition of it. And Yemen was the country in which I wrote my PhD when I was here at LSE. Uh, but it's also a great pleasure uh, to welcome here Michael Cox and to thank him, a friend and colleague and aspiring partners we were, as he gently hinted, in the days of the Cold War. I do greatly respect what Michael Cox and others did over the years in Belfast for the academic study of Ireland and of its international relations, international relations which I remind you go back some 1,500 years, uh, but also in collaboration with other clear and courageous colleagues he took amidst great stress and difficulties of a kind we cannot imagine here, an independent and critical stand on many of the political and personal issues engulfing that country. I would repeat what Michael said, that I owe much of what I know and see and much of my instincts to the fact that I was born and brought up in Ireland. Not least skepticism about nationalists, clergymen, and merchants of identity, but also against the arrogance and stupidity of imperial powers from other places who sought to dominate and dictate our affairs. I have never said that knowing about Ireland qualifies you to understand the rest of the world, but is a very, very good skeptical place to start. A bit like in regard to many of the finest minds in the LSE, having been brought up in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
uh, before or after first, the First World War. There are a few certainties, and it sure makes you think. It is no accident, in my view, that the first two directors of the LSE Human Rights Center, Professor Conor Gierty and, before that, myself, came from the Republic of Ireland. That we are skeptical about the claims of power, about the abuse of the legal system, but we are also skeptical about many of those who proclaim themselves or self-proclaim themselves to be agents of national or social emancipation, and not least of those who, from more comfortable emplacements, seek to ditch concepts of legality or rights, or indeed a liberal interpretation of the Enlightenment. Uh, I have a saying that those who cannot think straight about Ireland cannot think straight about anything. That's quite a number of people, including some of them in senior positions in this city. Uh, in the course of my time at LSE, I've had the pleasure of many encounters and events, and i just mentioned one or two. Perhaps my proudest moment came in, I think, 1988, when I had the occasion, because he was in London to promote his book, of inviting one of the greatest figures of the 20th century, Herr Willy Brandt, a great German Democrat and patriot, a resolute and heroic opponent of fascism to the school. During his visit, Herr Brandt was presented in a very emotional moment to one of the great figures of LSE's history, Dr. Anne Bohm, herself a refugee from Nazi Germany who served at the school from 1942 to 1985 as school secretary. I also remember during the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait, a country I've known now for 35 years, inviting my good friend, the Kuwaiti sociology professor, Mohammed al-Ramehi, to speak in the new theater. Uh, most of the students had never seen a Kuwaiti before. And he said something very simple. He got up and he said, look, I'm like you. I'm a science, social scientist. I'm a sociologist. My country's been invaded, and we need your help. In this theater, I've seen President Bill Clinton. I've seen my own president, Dr. Mary Robinson, Robin Cook, Kofi Annan, Presidents Fernando Enrique Cardoso and Lula of Brazil, uh, Sheikha Hasina of Bangladesh, President Chandrika Bandranaika of Sri Lanka. In other build, uh, rooms in this building, I once invited Benazir Bhutto, in, I think 2000. Uh, and in the Peacock Theatre, I had the pleasure to see President Nelson Mandela dancing to a special theatrical arrangement arranged by the Office of uh, De De Development and Alumni Relations. In my time at LSE, I've also had many interesting encounters with students as a teacher. Uh, we are a community with people from over 150 countries. And as I say, in one week, you will meet people from at least 30 different countries. The most important experience is that ideas, thinking, argument are in themselves exciting. They're, they're one of the great joys and one of the great thrills of life and something which all people can participate in. And how this affects students or how you are affected, you can never predict. One experience as a teacher I'll never forget is not a strictly academic one, but in an office hour, an American student came to see me early on in the year to express great frustration with the formalities and bureaucratic procedures of the school. I think involving changing options in the third week or some such thing. It sounds like Kafka, I said, registering uh, some disrespect for the procedures of the school upon which the student said to me who is Kafka so, so I explained that Franz Kafka was a Czech writer who wrote in German, who died in 1924 and who'd written among other things two great novels about the uncertainties, complexities and multiple possible explanations of modern life, the trial and the castle next morning when I arrived at my office around 9.30 I found the same student pacing up and down unshaven, looking slightly manic and distracted uh, and, and, and obviously not having eaten. I've just spent the whole night reading Kafka, he announced. I've read both novels and I've not slept. Uh, I thought, well, this is what teaching is all about. 
the impact of one's teaching is not usually so direct. Another special memory concerns a student from Nepal, a man in his 30s, a left-wing politician, who'd been in jail, but was funded by the Friedrich Neumann Stiftung, the official foundation of the German Free Democrats, to come here to study for two years on a research, what was called research fee. He'd been, his release had been negotiated, provided he came to study at LSE. So some months later, Sher Bahadur Deyuba, already in his 30s, came to do two years of his research on democracy in India. And he used to bring me letters from the leader of his party, from Michael Foote and other people in the Labour Party. Very modest man, he lived on the floor of a Nepalese restaurant in Charlotte Street. At one point, a delegation of politicians came from Nepal. They asked me if I could introduce Sher Bahadur to some female companions and arrange a marriage for him. But I had to explain that this was not the practice of British supervisors. <laughs> The period of his research concluded, Sher Bahadur returned to Nepal, and I heard no more about him. And then a few years later, I met a lawyer from Nepal, and I asked her if she knew what any news of Sher Bahadur. Oh, yes, she said, he's very well, and two wonderful things have happened to him. I said, what? Well, most importantly, he's married, and he has a son. And the second thing, she said, oh, he's prime minister. <laughs> and sure enough, months later, he arrived in Houghton Street in a government Bentley with a garland of flowers for me, and due respect was paid to his research supervisor. Uh, in my time at LSE, I've also had the pleasure of working with five directors, each someone with a distinct and inspiring relationship to the school and of great importance, people who have supported the staff and school community in their work in good times and in bad. Ralph Darendorf, I.G. Patel, John Ashworth, Tony Giddens, and now Sir Howard Davies. That LSE, a quintessentially British institution, has had directors from, respectively, Britain's greatest enemy in the 20th century, namely Germany, and from its greatest colony, namely India, it's itself an index of the international and inclusive policy of this institution. I.G. Patel appointed me, and it was he who, in his valedictory address to the school, and himself a former governor of the Bank of India and governor of the World Bank, drew attention to the importance of non-monetary, qualitative public goods, of which education is one, and of the need to resist measuring all outputs or services in monetary or financial terms. In regard to Tony Giddens, I had the honor and pleasure of serving on the committee that appointed him, perhaps the thing I'm most proud of in my time at LSE. Uh, I can well recall the occasion when in the year 2000 I flew with him accompanied by our wonderful uh, and loyal governor, Victor Dardale, uh, to Kuwait. And as the plane swung down over Saudi Arabia, because you had to avoid Saddam's missiles, Victor sat on one side and I sat on the other. And we said to Tony, now look, you're going to, we're taking the airport, to the airport and then we're going to, you're going to give a lecture at the university on globalization. What should I say, said Tony? We said, look, give the usual spiel on globalization, but you have to leave out some things deference to local susceptibilities. First of all, don't talk about secularization and modernity. We don't want any of that. Uh, the decline of the nuclear family. We don't want any of that. We don't want any talk about transgressive postmodern identities. We don't want any of that. Well, in the event, uh, Victor and I took him to the university. Uh, we met with officials, but it soon emerged that the Kuwaitis really only want to talk about one thing, which is the bottom of Giddens' CV, which is football. So one minister wanted to know about Tottenham Hotspur, another about Arsenal, another about Manchester United, Glenn Hoddle, Brian Clough, I don't know what. Uh, and even when he went on TV, instead of talking about the LSE and promoting his the third way or whatever, he was asked inexorably about football, which he carried off extremely well. The one area of globalization, which of course the United States does not compete. Uh, the conclusion 
Yet, I draw from these varied and rich experiences directed at LSE is, however, an important one in these managerial and technologically advanced age. It is this, that in modern institutions, in business as in universities, and for all the pressures of convention, budget, time, what is absolutely key is the quality of leadership, the vision, the commitment, the energy, the judgment of the person at the top. Uh, it may be hard to define, but you quickly learn whether you're a student, a professor, a porter, a budget holder, if leadership is not there. And in that regard, LSE has been and remains really fortunate. So too has it been fortunate in the administrators upon we have all come to rely. I particularly wish to thank here the redoubtable long-serving Secretary Christine Chalice, Secretary for many years, when I had a problem as convener of my department, otherwise I went to see Christine. It took as long as for her to finish a cigarette and stub it out before the decision was reached. Everything's fine, Christine, and off I went. Three minutes and that was it. Um, I would also wish to salute the indomitable central figure in our department, uh, Hilary Parker, who has been with us and helped us through these times. But I also want to salute the colleagues of Wrights Bar, a very special LSE institution. No once in Japan, the head of Nomura, after several glasses of sake, confessing he'd been at LSE, and he wanted to know one thing. Was Wrights Bar still open? I said, yes, it is. More philosophers and presidents have eaten in Wrights Bar, unheated as it is, unchanging as the menu is, than in all the Ritzes and Hiltons and Blue Pack buildings in London. Remember once in there, at lunchtime, I found myself next to a guy, unshaven guy in a raincoat, who's obviously Greek. And I don't have much Greek, but I said, I need a few remarks like this. Anyway, it turned out he was a multimillionaire ship owner who liked to be anonymous. He didn't want to be bothered at lunch. He didn't want to go to the hill. He didn't want to go to the Sheridan. He just wanted to have bacon and eggs and an omelette and read the papers and place a few bets on the 3.30 at Kempton Park or whatever. And we got talking, and I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from, from Chios, he said. The island of Chios. Uh, we're a shipping island, and I've been, my family's been in shipping 200 years and so forth. And I, then I said, well, what's Chios famous for? And he looked at me. He said, you don't know? He said, Homer was born in Chios. I said, wait a minute, Homer was born in Smyrna. He said, my friend, Homer was born in 12 places, but don't tell the tourists. <laughs> uh, just to conclude on the general point, uh, I am, as you may know, leaving LSE after 25 years of teaching in the International Relations Department at the end of March, and I'll be taking a research chair in Catalonia, funded by the Catalan Institute for Research and Advanced Studies, ICREA. Last night, by the way, the LSE Asociación de Estudiantes Catalans was founded with Paul Preston and myself as honorary presidents. And tonight, in fact, they're having a Catalan party in the, in the student bar. Um, and there I will have an attachment more or less on the same lines as would be in the case of British University to a new postgraduate research program of the recently established Barcelona Institute for International Studies, eBay. eBay is now in its fourth year. It has about, at the moment about 50 master's students and postdocs. Our former convener and colleague Margot Light, even as I speak, is being entertained in eBay and will be speaking twice tomorrow uh, on Russian foreign policy. I shall hope to catch the second. And we have an active program of research and visiting speakers. The director of our institute and of the neighboring research institute, SIDOP, is one of the most distinguished Democrats and politicians in the modern history of Spain, Mr. Nasi Serra former mayor of Barcelona, the man who, as Minister of Defense, democratized the Spanish army and intelligence services in the 80s, no mean feat, and also something of which he is especially proud, 
an alumnus and honorary fellow of the London School of Economics. Uh, I've enjoyed inviting many speakers out. I also began last year what I hope will be an annual event to visit of master's students in June or July for half a day of joint seminar with Ari Bay students, uh, during which we, I organized what I would take to be the first ever LSE postgraduate seminar in a Chiringuito, a beach bar, where amidst chill-out music and plates of jamón iberico and pan con tomate, we scale the higher reaches of historical sociology, globalization, intercultural relations, and I cannot remember what else. And I hope this will become an annual institution. Now to the subject, particularly of international relations. <laughs> what preceded was transnational relations. Let me, first of all, say something briefly about international relations as a discipline, because there are many who do not know what it is and how it fits in with the other disciplines and topics taught at LSE, we now have 24 different departments and specialized centers or institutes. The IR department is, along with economics, politics, and law, one of the four largest. Of every discipline, we can ask two questions. In the face of what problem, to meet what problem, and in the face of what crisis was it established, was it separated and split off from the broader field of human investigation? If there's no problem, no crisis, there isn't a need for a discipline. Secondly, what is its core concern? What is its investigative focus? We know the focus of economics on markets and prices, and output, employment. The focus of sociology is the family and religion and education and so forth. The focus of politics is voting. What is the focus of international relations? We have to accept first that academic disciplines are not God-given. They're not natural. They're not eternal. They are like countries, modern inventions, artificial delimitations of territory, of administration, of personnel, and not least of budgets. The results not of destiny or abstract reason or planning, but of accident, where armies got tired of fighting, where colleagues got tired of fighting or working together, where external enforces imposed lines. Two centuries ago, human knowledge, or what we call social science, was one large protean intellectual mass without clear distinctions or without clear disciplines. Mr. Kant and Mr. Russo, let alone Mr. Machiavelli and Mr. Plato, would not have understood the distinction into 24 different disciplines. As far as international relations is concerned, the original pre-disciplinary discussions which took place in historic thought, and which I think still merit much attention, on matters of war and diplomacy, sovereignty and authority, and international law, took disciplinary form around the time of the early 20th century, at the time of imperial conflict on the one hand and of the World War I, a distinct moment when IR, first of all, as the subject designed to prevent the recurrence of war, was established in Aberystwyth, what Michael Cox taught with many other distinguished colleagues, and here at LSE. In all of this, LSE played a significant part, even though the IR department did not come into existence in secession from the history department until the post-Second World War epoch. We had on the imperial side the geopolitical reflections of Halford Mackinder, a supporter of empire, indeed of the supremacy of the human races, unfortunately, in my view, recently celebrated in the name of one of the school's recently established research centers. But an even more influential idea also issued from LSE, this time from a man who was never promoted, indeed was denied tenure, the liberal political economist and opponent of the Boer War, John Hobson. 
Hobson's 1902 study of imperialism was the origin of what came to be arguably the most influential idea of the 20th century, espoused by revolutionaries and economic nationalist politicians the world over, reformulated by Lenin, not stolen by Lenin in his famous pamphlet, not a book, of 1916, and now superficially recycled in Quranic and Islamic guard, one of the mainstays of anti-Western Islamist rhetoric of Mr. Khomeini, Mr. Bin Laden, and the rest. If imperialism is truly, as Lenin suggested, the highest stage of capitalism, we may doubt. But that for many, indeed most people in the world 100 years ago, as for today, the international system is based on economic inequality, economic exploitation, on pillage, injustice, and oppression. This remains as true today as it was 100 years ago when John Hobson wrote. With the establishment of academic departments and chairs in the UK, the IR discipline took shape. And IR defined its field around a set of theoretical debates and broadly fell in terms of general outlook into three main schools. Conventionally, and I think correctly seen, as the realist or pessimist one, which saw force as dominant and little possibility of change, a liberal or reformist, cautiously optimistic one, and a more radical, revolutionary, and utopian one. If classic figures would be in the first Hobbes and Machiavelli, uh, and then Rousseau and I, I, although not others, would include Kant in the second. Robespierre and Lenin, or in our own day, Che Guevara and Bin Laden, would be in the third group. To summarize the state of IR today, we can see it as an arena of conflict and, and interaction between these three broad fields of explanation. These are realist, pessimistic, the liberal, optimistic, and the revolutionary. And this... Uh, is, these are explanations that remain loyal to the historic focus of IR and which see international relations, first of all, predominantly, if not wholly, in terms of the interaction of states and remain skeptical of what is termed the non-state or the transnational. But other explanations seek to give more, at times transcendent or increasing importance to non-state forces and processes such as economic actors, social movements, ideologies, armed groups, terrorists, and to opposition social and political forces. And there's a third approach which downplays the importance of actors, be they states or non-state actors, and argues instead for the focus on structures, be they ones of security, economics, ideology, culture, or in an issue that was important 200 years ago, then slipped away from view and has now come back, the issue of environment and climate. The richness of IR as an academic discipline lies not only in the variety of explanations and research agenda generated in its three-part division, but also in the fact that, as is appropriate to any general explanation, each can provide a reasonably plausible explanation of major world events and contemporary trends. Thus, to take some recent examples, the end of the European empires in, their 19, in the 1950s and 1960s, the collapse of Soviet communism at the end of the 80s, the Iranian revolution of 30 years ago, for such it is, the breakup of Yugoslavia, the limits and spread of European integration, the rise of Islamist violence and 9-11, each can be analyzed in terms of these three approaches, as can equally more important if long-term historic processes, such as the rise of the modern state system after 1500, the formation of the colonial system, world wars and cold war. Here, IR abuts onto, but has to be distinguished from, and I hope will continue to be distinguished from, other cognate disciplines. Interdisciplinarity has its limits and its dangers. IR always has had and should retain respect for and cognizance of international law. 
even while recognizing that international peace and order and the working of international institutions are determined by political and power factors as well as by law and constitutions. While IR frequently and rightly engages with and comments on contemporary issues, what distinguishes IR as an academic discipline from international history is not the time frame of its analysis. We are not doing international history without archives. Uh, it is not the historical period. It is a form of analytic framework it deploys, theoretical and comparative in the case of IR, narrative, documentary, and particular in the case of international history. In recent times, you've seen the rise of an exciting new field of what are termed global studies, ones that by dint of theoretical inclination tend to gravitate towards the liberal and revolutionary sides of the argument. But IR, ever conscious of its origins as a study of state behavior, can and should question how far everything that is presented as global really is. Not everything that blisters is gold, and not everything that uses the word global is so either. We should question how far states have in reality been replaced by societal relations, how far what are formerly international, even supposedly supranational institutions like the UN or the EU really operate by combining and aggregating the interests of their members, and indeed how far supposedly transnational actors, be they multinational corporations or satellite TV stations, or what are seen as the agents of global civil society, are really as independent of states and of state controls and interests as they're often enthusiastic, but not always that well and very well informed proponents would have us believe. To take two obvious examples, the anti-globalization movement originating from the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre presents itself as gathering, indeed as being a carnival of non-state actors. But as anyone familiar with operations in Porto Alegre and its associated activities knows, there are states, bearers of international radicalism, particularly Cuba and Venezuela, which take a close interest in organizing, following, and directing proceedings of Porto Alegre. In another register, it is often stated that the Islamic Islamist armed group Al-Qaeda is a transnational or non-state actor, which it may well be today, although I suspect it still enjoys the patronage and protection of at least parts of the state operators of one country in that region, as well as financial support indulged in by many people from Gulf states. Yet for much of its history, going back to the Afghan war of the 1980s, Al-Qaeda and its predecessors enjoyed direct support and financing of states, namely Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the USA. In the early 1990s, Al-Qaeda was based in Sudan, an ally of the government there. And in the late 1990s, the Taliban government in the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, as it was called, until 2001, also gave it shelter in support. And I repeat, it is a matter of some debate how far even today at least one of these states does not continue with much support or protection of Al-Qaeda and its associates and its leader, may I say. In this regard, IR can and does serve not only as a means of explaining and rendering more intelligible the complex world in which we live, but it may also serve in healthy engagement and interchange with cognate disciplines to challenge, I might even on occasion suggest, to correct some of the enthusiasms and solecisms that characterize the utterances of other disciplines upon matters international. Turning to the question of hegemony, I want to address the topic of international relations in the post-hegemonic world in three different ways. First, most obviously, as a reflection upon U.S. power and the difficulties in which U.S. unilateralism has run in recent years. Secondly, as a reflection on the IR discipline itself and in the receding within it of the theoretical and disciplinary hegemony 
or dominance by one paradigm, namely that of state-centered realism. But thirdly, in a normative vein, and picking up on the theme of my inaugural two decades and more ago, and indeed the intellectual core of my own work, to examine how each of the main aspirant claims to represent internationalism have in their own way lost hegemony, lost credibility and coherence, even as the world has become more globalized. First, the decline or at least temporary difficulties of U.S. power and global domination, or at least the failure of U.S. power or those who propagated in Washington to prevail and to sustain what in the U.S. is politely called the American empire. They talk about empire, they don't talk about imperialism, but I think one term can lead to the other. There is at the moment great interest around the world in the United States as a result of the primary elections. And not since I was a schoolboy aged 14, in the early months of 1960, can I recall such interest, enthusiasm, much of it well-intentioned about U.S. politics, as if the world wants a friendlier and more open America a sentiment which I'm sure is echoed by many voters in the USA as well. Thus, the debate on the future of U.S. power has both an academic and a direct public interest. But it also has a long pedigree. It was the Tocqueville who, in the early 19th century, anticipated a future dominated by the two continental states, Russia and America. And it was Time magazine Henry Luce, who in 1941, on the eve of America's decisive entry into both the Pacific and European wars, who predicted the American century. Since then, there's been no shortage of people, as Mick Cox has well described and others also Paul Kennedy, who have written about the decline of U.S. power from the rise of the Soviet space program in the 50s to the Third World Revolution in the 60s and 70s in Vietnam, Iran, and elsewhere, to the emergence of China, Japan, and Europe as economic powers, and they have predicted the end of U.S. predominance of hegemony, or in post-Cold War terms, the end of U.S. unipolar domination. For sure that one day the U.S.'s control of and dominance over the world will lessen is indisputable. But this is not the same thing as saying that another power will emerge in the foreseeable future that is equal to it or able to rival it, as the USSR did from a position of overall weakness even in the Cold War. A world of one dominant and then several medium powers seems much more probable. What I have myself in that necessary exaggeration and propagation of great historical terms we're all supposed to engage in what I've called contested unipolarity. Uh, America is and will remain number one for the foreseeable future, although there are many who do not accept it. Some talk echoing Kennedy's 1988 book of imperial overstretch, and certainly that they are in Iraq and Afghanistan. Michael Mann has talked of the incoherent empire. I'll be coming here in a month, I think, to talk about this again. Martin Woolacott of The Guardian has written a recent book on the dangers of the decline of imperial powers. In more meta-Hegelian speculation, Tony Negri and Michael Hart have written an empire just as of the decline of American power, just although of its transformation into something more emancipatory. And there are others, such as President Chavez and Ahmadinejad, who talked about ending the power of the dollar. Now, all of this may be true, but there are important countervailing arguments, and they're ones which were recently espoused well in a seminar here at LSE, organized again by Mick Cox by Professor Robert Singer Birkbeck. He points out, first of all, that we've heard all this before, that in many key respects, military expenditure, international influence, pop culture, information technology, the power of its economy, the U.S. remains unrivaled. In hard power and military capability and budgets, 
again there's nobody to challenge it much Chinese and Soviet armaments are highly questionable in terms of international influence there are really only five countries in the world that are dead set against America which are North Korea, Iran, Syria, Cuba and Venezuela and while America has indeed entered into a disaster in Iraq uh, it remains resilient and this is evident from Europe from Gordon Brown, from Sarkozy, from Merkel that the Europeans would like to have better relations with the United States finally Singh emphasizes the question of will a very important factor in the endurance of great powers there is no evidence from the current debate in the United States or from anything we hear from the political elite in Washington certainly not from the Democratic Party that they wish to abandon US leadership and primacy they just want to do it in a different way in this sense the new president of 2009 can only in some degree alter existing policies Washington will continue to want to run if not control the world and we should not expect too much from the possible alternatives be they Hillary Clinton or Obama at the time this debate will certainly run and run and for any observer of US foreign policy I think we must keep an open mind and not be rushed into premature judgments of decline but beneath it there are more intractable questions which concern us as observers and as students of international relations and I want to point out four curious questions which I think merit closer attention beyond speculation about the rise and decline of hegemony or who lied or said what about Iraq first of all within the realm of international political economy there's the question of how far the US wars in Iraq and Afghanistan really affect the US economy in the way that the Vietnam War certainly did in the 60s and early 70s there seems to be a strange disconnect it's not Iraq and Afghanistan that are causing the subprime crisis the US economy continues to steam on and will continue to steam on in output terms irrespective of what happens in Iraq also it seems irrespective of what happens in Afghanistan secondly there is a question within the field of foreign policy and foreign policy analysis which puzzles me why has it taken so long for the US to recognize the crisis it's in in Iraq I was in Washington in the autumn of 2005 and I sat in my hotel room watching Senator Jim Murta a very distinguished old soldier who looks as I noted at the time like a publican from County Galway uh, uh, telling us about the disastrous war in Iraq he had been visiting Walter Reed and Bethesda hospitals uh, and he spoke absolutely clearly about the catastrophic situation and yet here we are many many months later the Hamilton uh, report having come and gone uh, and it would seem that great powers are notoriously unable to face up to realities just as the US failed to face up to the Iranian revolution in 78-79 uh, or the USSR to the war in Afghanistan and for all the reports, debates, criticism, surges the US is bogged down and Bush is continuing with his policy in Iraq as they did in 2004-2005 thirdly there is an intellectual and policy related matter which I think should concern all of us and which certainly comes out in Afghanistan and Iraq which is this is a country conducting major operations around the world putting at risk and, and losing the lives on both sides of many people but at the top and in policy making circles almost completely devoid of people with any experience of or understanding of or expertise about these countries let alone people who know something about their history and languages 
the few specialists on Iraq and, uh, and Iran who worked in Washington across the USA have been systematically marginalized from policy discussions. And their place has been taken by a motley rabble of irresponsible and often corrupt political exiles, by so-called terrorism experts. You can no more be an expert on terrorism than you can be an expert on mashed potatoes because terrorism. <laughs> uh, security types and other mountebanks. Uh, many of those who pontificate about Iran in the U.S. Day, these days have never been there and could not write an academic article, an academic essay, or gain admission to an MSc at LSE uh, on the basis of their qualifications. <coughs> Finally, there is a question that goes to the heart, not only of recent U.S. policy in the Middle East, but the very character and sources of U.S. foreign policy, a mystery which has been covered up by the debate about lies and weapons of mass destruction. That's a very straightforward question, but a very important one. Why did George Bush decide to invade Iraq in the first place? Uh, everyone has their pet theory, the military-industrial complex, the Israeli lobby, the Saudi lobby, the evangelical lobby, revenge for his father, uh, but none of these single-factor explanations really seem to add up. Uh, many writers have, have tried to blame particular lobbies, uh, and some have ascribed it to psychological factors, namely George Bush Jr. wanting to finish the job. But the only plausible answer based on the books, and there are quite a number of good journalistic books by Woodward and James Mann and others, the only plausible answer must be some or all of the above. We, we do not necessarily need more information. We need more theory. We need more analytic grip on this material in order to come up with what is a very extraordinary question. How can the world's major power have launched a war of such a catastrophic kind, and why did it do it? From this discussion of a contemporary analytic question, the Iraq War and the American power, uh, I would want to join one, uh, draw one broader conclusion, which is this, that in matters of the social science, not just in international relations, but in economics and in sociology and in politics, we need data, we need archives, we need interviews. But we need qualitative powers of judgment and comparison and knowledge of history as well. These questions do not allow of precise, decisive, scenario-focused answers. Any more does the question of what are going to be the consequences of the subprime crisis in the U.S. for the rest of the economy. My colleague, Dr. Blair, Mary Blair, reminds me again and again, none of us know whether bird flu is going to hit us in the next three or six months and kill off millions of people. All these questions do not permit of precise scientific answer. Uh, we can gather information, but the, the conclusions we come to must be based on judgment, on hunch, on listening to other people, as much as on what is allegedly scientific. And of course, as all of us who have studied in the best traditions of LSE, the history and philosophy, not just of social science, but of science, of Popper, Thomas Kuhn, and the notorious anarchist Paul Feyerabend, who occasioned my first ever visit to the senior common room, I was brought here to edit one of his books because there were footnotes in Latin, pointing out that Galileo got it right, but he faked his evidence. Um, they have all pointed out that scientists also do not proceed in the positivist, number-crunching way that has come with such catastrophic intellectual consequences to prevail, like some intellectual plague of locusts in social science today. Uh, in this sense, we must recall, for international relations, as for all social scientists, the argument of the great American sociologist and the great Texan, C. Wright Mills in his book, The Sociological Imagination, that sociology and by extension all social sciences are not sciences in the hard sense. They are crafts. 
and crafts require skill, they require training, they require judgment, they require thinking without deadlines and thinking without having to rush to meetings. And this, I think, is a very, very important lesson from the major issues of today for international relations and for social science as a whole. If it leads to a growing mid-Atlantic divide, this is to be regretted. But we should not be stampeded by pseudo-scientific and over-quantified social science, let alone by the banalities of rational choice theory and its associates into abandoning the historic and normative and judgment-based approach to social and political issues that we have. I'll pass over quickly the question of IR as a discipline, except to say that I think that in the great debates on globalization which are taking place today, uh, we have new challenges and many new uh, opportunities. And I want to mention quickly four areas which arise out of my own work, but also issues which I've noticed in working in Barcelona, which require, in my view, to be put much more at the center of the discipline. The first is the question of gender. Uh, international relations came late, late to the question of gender. Gender understood as the structuring of power and relations on the basis of gendered and sexual stereotypes. But I have issued a, a, an idea or challenge, falsifiable challenge in the Popperian sense 20 years ago, which has yet to be falsified, which is this. There is not a single international process a single dimension of international relations, nor a single dimension of transnational relations, which does not have a gender dimension. Not war, not diplomacy, not negotiation, not, not the drugs trade, not human rights, etc., etc., not the world economy. Gender is imbricated in, deeply present in all forms of interaction between states and societies. We see this very clearly in the debate on women's rights, and in the perfidious role played by the coalition of Washington, Qatar, Libya, Tehran, and Syria in international conferences, an axis of evil, if ever there was one, may I say. Um, we see it in the uh, way in which international economy affects the position of women and affects different uh, divisions of labor in the workforce. We see it in the diffusion of all forms of conservative and sexist ideology around the world through the Internet, and I think that the challenge to international relations, to not just to mainstream, but to recognize the profoundly gendered nature of everything we study is one that has not yet been taken up. We recently had the 20th anniversary of the first LSE conference uh, on gender and international relations, and we were the first in the world to do it, to put it on as, a, as an examinable course, and I think that agenda remains extremely unfulfilled. Second issue is issue that's central to my own work within political sociology was the central importance of social movements and social upheaval and need of revolutions in the formation of the modern world. Now, Hannah Arendt said that the 20th century was the century of wars and revolutions. I would alter that. I would say the last four centuries, in fact the whole history of the modern system since the establishment in the 16th century is a history of wars and revolutions and that revolutions are central whether those of France, China, Russia, Cuba, Nicaragua, Iran, Libya, or something I certainly regard as revolutionary, the collapse of communism in Europe in 1989. And yet this topic has been, with the singular exception of some colleagues at LSE and one or two other places, marginalized from the study of international relations. There are no journals, there are no centers, there are no chairs, there are no grants, and yet 
uh, I would argue that this is uh, just as important for the study of international relations as is war. I noticed that Professor Ewan Ferguson, Ewan Ferguson, the sort of right-wing version of Slavoj Žižek, as I consider him to be, uh, has recently come out with a history of the 20th century, signaling out uh, the role of nationalism and other factors in the forming of the 20th century, but revolution also, perhaps not surprisingly, does not figure on his list. The third area that is a particular concern of mine is that of culture and of language. By neglecting the role of culture and language in international and transnational relations, above all through the conceit of the English-speaking world, which largely ignores this huge area of human experience, but also by falling into simplistic concepts of culture, we have left the field open to the simplifiers and the bigots of whom Samuel Huntington is, of course, in this, his worst book, uh, his others are much better, uh, the prime example. Too often, the rediscovery of culture the alleged incidents of cultural difference or the role of religion are monopolized by theorists, by theologians, by philosophers, by political theorists whose intentions may be generous, often tolerant, but who actually know very little about the countries or issues they're talking about. We need to study culture in its effects on foreign policy, international institutions, globalization, but it needs to be grounded in a knowledge of societies and religions and contexts, and it also needs to be grounded in a much tougher attitude towards claims as to the role of culture as an influential or autonomous variable. Culture and international relations are related, but in my view it's much more that international factors, occupation, nationalism, war, affect culture than it's the other way around. And here I come to my one lasting and profound disagreement with recent history of the London School of Economics, which is the abolition in the 1980s by a coalition of accountants and mathematicians of the Department of Linguistics and Language. We have here a wonderful and vibrant and imaginatively-led teaching centre for language. But we do not have a centre for the study of what is arguably the most important, the primal form of human interaction, more important and more profound and more influential than economics, politics, law, accountancy, or even international relations. And this theoretical bias, compounded by the monolingual conceit of the Anglo-Saxon world, means that we are unable to see how important issues of language are in structuring power and social relations in the world today. I would like to see the recognition not only of language and linguistics as central to the study of the social sciences, because to teach language without teaching theory is like teaching people shopping without teaching economics, or teaching them how to use a ballot machine without teaching them democratic theory. And, but there is also within globalization a vast area of linguistic change and power. I observe this very much in Spain, where, of course, I'm in a more multilingual context than I would be here in Hutton Street, something that I would call, perhaps inchoately, the sociolinguistics of globalization, the relationship between language, power, social, economic, political power, not least citizenship, of course, in structuring relations of immigration, of employment, of allocation of wealth, and also the very important consequences of shifts in the English language and in computer technology as they affect languages spoken throughout the world. And yet on this issue, LSE and indeed the whole of the Anglo-Saxon world have simply abandoned the historical responsibility. Now here, in pursuit of the best traditions of these islands, and indeed in pursuit of the best traditions of this part of London, I wish to invoke the memory and the authority of the man who, in my view, 
is the greatest of all English social scientists, the 18th century lexicographer, uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson, whose statue stands five minutes from the school and who lived five minutes' walk from here. Uh, his dictionary, published in 1755, was not the first dictionary of the English language, but he was very much what is disparagingly called a lone scholar, but a lone scholar who understood the decisive importance of language in human society, in human culture, in human psychology, and who also, lexicographer that he was, in trying to fix the meaning of words, knew that this was in many ways a vain and tragic activity since words constantly change and meanings as well. And I would like to think one day that if the school wishes to honour the best in English social science and the best in London social science and indeed a local boy long before the LSE, there will be a Samuel Johnson's chair or centre for the study of sociolinguistics and of the disarming rapidity of change of language, not just English, in the contemporary world. Finally, in regard to IR and the post-hegemonic world, I would want to adopt a more pessimistic note on something that has come more and more to concern me, which is the hidden, illegal, violent, criminal side of globalization. I read articles on regulation. I read articles on reforming the UN. I see the international conferences. But reading the papers as I do, and I now have the time to do, about court cases and corrupt policemen and corrupt businessmen and fake accounts and all the rest of it, and living in a city with very rapid migration and other changes and having the time to follow these things, I suspect that we are best looking at the bright side of the moon and ignoring the dark side, and that criminality, illegality, money laundering, fake papers, violence, corruption are as important to the world economy and to the politics of most countries in the world as is the bright side that we see. And here I want to say how much I owe to all my PhD students. I've had actually 60 research students in my time at LSE, and we're going to have a celebratory or denunciatory party, I don't care which, in March to commemorate. But I want to mention one student, Dr. Paddy Vetosti, uh, the great-great-granddaughter of a Persian Shah, uh, and she doesn't let one forget this, uh, uh, who did a thesis on the international IR dimensions of the drugs trade the most terrifying document I've read in recent years because it shows both our disciplinary and our real-world refusal to face up to this issue. Uh, I think that we have radically to alter our view of regulation, of state power, of direction of the world, to take into account this large, and my instinct is, growing world. After all, drugs trade is the second largest commodity after oil traded in the world. Money laundering, uh, all the rest of it. If you've got... 50,000 pounds, people check on you. If you've got 50 million, no one's going to check on you. Uh, and, and this is the way uh, the world is going at the moment. It's an inchoate subject. It's not one where the statistics are there, but it gives me great concern. And here I return, of course, to the unique qualities of the LSE, because occasionally little bits of this shark or this iceberg emerge. I recall a research student of mine from a Central Asian state who came to see me one day he said, Professor, I have a piece of research for you. And he brought out a piece of paper with how much it costs to buy all the ministries in the government of his country. In other words, how much you had to pay the president. Ministry of Education, $20,000. Of course, Ministry of Economics, $200,000. And, of course, Ministry of Defense, because of the opportunities it provided, a million dollars. And I suspect this was an accurate list and one that uh, applies to many countries. I will pass over, as time is short, my views 
on the post-hegemonic nature of internationalism. But only to say that of the three forms of internationalism that I identified two decades ago, the imperial or hegemonic, the liberal and the revolutionary, all have had uh, enormous developments in recent years. The, the idea that America can dominate the world, that American culture, language, internet will dominate the world has certainly had its run. Liberal internationalism has developed with the EU, with the UN, with the International Criminal Court, with global civil society. And revolutionary internationalism, paying rather too little attention to the mistakes of the past, in my view, has been reincarnated in the Porto Alegre movement, the global justice movement, the anti-hegemonic movement. But all three are obviously in difficulty, because hegemonic imperialism of the American kind is widely rejected across the world. Liberal internationalism is nice, uh, but the EU and the UN are not in the best of shape. Uh, the International Criminal Court is rejected by most countries in the world. Uh, and uh, identity politics and anti-liberal sentiment prevail in many, many countries. As for revolutionary internationalism, an alliance of Mr. Ahmadinejad and Mr. Chavez is not, in my view, the first step towards global emancipation uh, and is one which should give anybody concerned with global justice serious concern. Let me now conclude by remarking something about the anniversaries which we are confronted with this year. I've referred back 20 years to my inaugural internationalism, but I'd like to refer to something earlier which is very important in my life and on which I remain relatively unrepentant, which is 1968, the year of youth and student revolt the world over, and at the time when I, in which I was an active, enthusiastic, and if rather optimistic participant. It has become fashionable to denounce and to despise and to slag off the, the record of 68. Mr. Tony Blair and Mr. Nicholas Sarkozy seem to think they can get some cheap thrills out of that. But there was, certainly, as in any period of upheaval and rapid cultural and intellectual change, a lot of nonsense talked in 68. And within the general outburst of cultural and political energy, epitomized as much by the Beatles as by radical ideas, there was a minoritarian but dangerous nihilist and also philistine undertow, one that was years later to find expression in violent action by small groups in Germany, Italy, and the USA. In terms of hard political impact in marking the start of major new phases in the life of countries, there are only two European countries where this can be said to have occurred, Czechoslovakia and Northern Ireland. But for those of us who participate in these events and share their hopes, they, re they retain an important intellectual legacy, first of all as a commitment to internationalism and support for those fighting communism in Czechoslovakia or fighting for independence in Vietnam. It was also a time of great intellectual fervor, a time above all for the challenging of orthodox ideas and for the challenging of the idols and fetishes of the age. It was a time for denying the inevitability, the unchangeability of human entities and organizations, be they family, political power, gender, location, or anything else. And this, I think, is a very important legacy, faced with the idols of our time, particularly the nation, the market, to which LSE, in my view, has given far too much credibility in recent years, both of them. Uh, we need to challenge these categories and think of alternative ways of organizing our affairs and of breaking through the apparently dominant and unchangeable nature of these institutions. However, I want to go back finally, as I did in one previous letter, to another age, which is 1848, 
year on which the manifesto of Marx and Engels was published, a document with many unfounded ideas, but also one which at times reads like a propaganda sheet for the World Bank uh, with the expansion of capitalism across the world. But in somewhat fastidious concern with language and translation, I wish to recall the lecture, which he never wrote up by a teacher of mine as an undergraduate, Professor Conrad Brandt, who was an expert on early communist writings in China. He had discovered the first 1910 translation of the Communist Manifesto into Chinese, into Mandarin Chinese, and through Japanese by Chinese students studying in Japan. And instead of the famous and often misunderstood words, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. The Chinese version read, scholars of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your shame. (laughs) I think this is a great slogan. Uh, And as in a previous lecture in this theater a decade or so ago, I can think of no better words with which to conclude this lecture. Thank you very much. There's uh, much appreciation, and I now open the floor up to a few questions. We're at 22. I, I let the questions run until about 5-2, so we've got about 15, 15 minutes. So uh, who wants to begin the proceedings? Uh, where's the well, microphones? Uh, my microphone, yeah, could you, this gentleman here, please, start there and down thank here, you. the gentleman over here. Uh, thank you very much. One thing about uh, 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 having studied here some years ago, a degree in that subject myself, uh, you mentioned the various categories of international the, the one I thought about were the two main things, the historical, diplomatic, historical approach, and then the behavioralist, mathematical, computer-orientated kind of social science approach. Is that a distinction? Could you say something about the, 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 the relationship between these two approaches? Fred, over to you. <coughs> I notice that in the history faculty in Barcelona, in the Pompeo Fabro, uh, the main skill they teach master students is narrative. And I notice that in the London School of Economics, the main skill they teach is the use of archival and documentary material. Uh, I would not, I prefer not to think these are alternatives. A pure narrative, of course, is impossible, logically impossible, has to be graded. And you can write very brilliant and very persuasive history without waving huge theoretical flags, as in very different registers, Sir Michael Howard or Professor Eric Hobsbawm uh, or Paul Kennedy all do. And I have a challenge to my IR colleagues and to myself. Reading these theoretically informed historians, such as Kennedy, such as Hobsbawm, such as Sir Michael Howard and others, what intellectual value added do we add with our theories to what they write with their theoretically and intellectually informed narratives. I think there is a value added, but I think it's a challenge we have to meet. Uh, On the question of the social science uh, computer based and so on, first of all, I wish to deny 
the right of the computer-based and the number crunchers to monopolize the term social science. Because science, first of all, in broader terms, particularly as we Europeans, is, is really a form of knowledge. And secondly, because as Popper and Feyerabend and Lakatos and all of them taught us with great erudition, so-called natural science does not proceed in the way that number crunching uh, and other forms of positivist science would suggest. Having said which, uh, there is clearly a debate to be had, and in my view a perfectly healthy debate, about what is the role of quantification in social sciences. And the answer is it depends what you want to analyze. If you are discussing employment policy or pricing policy or inflation trends in economics, clearly you need statistics. If you're discussing in, in the field of international relations the role of demography uh, or the role of climate or the role of trade patterns, again, you need quantification. So quantification is an instrument, as is the knowledge of a foreign language or is the knowledge of history, and it should be appropriately used. What I think is mistaken was the prophetic attempt by behaviorists and others in the 60s and 70s to proclaim that they had discovered the truth, to throw out history, to throw out norms, to throw out foreign languages. And indeed, let us recall the comic origins of the term behaviorism, because in the U.S. Congress in the late 40s, they tried to get funding for economics, politics, etc., and they asked for funding for social sciences, but the senators thought that it was socialist sciences. So they said, well, we can't have this word social sciences, that's why they invented something else. Um, and I, I think the question, and our, our mathematically literate colleagues are the people to defer to on this. Where is quantification relevant and where isn't it? But my view is many of the great research projects across this longitudinal survey that ESRC, Ford, blah, 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 millions of dollars of pounds, and what do they come up with saying? Wars have many causes. Or nationalism has many effects. Or terrorism is a complex phenomenon. Or there, well, why not? But we, I think we could do that in a more uh, judgmental and, and single scholar way. So. Okay, Fred. Uh, the gentleman at the back over there and then over here. Um, thank you. I, I had the privilege of being an IR student at LSE in the early 90s. I want to pick up on two concepts that you talked about earlier and you highlighted as um, sort of lacking study, which is culture and linguistics, and ask you to comment on the impact that the so-called interna internationalization and democratization of the media will have on international relations. Thank you. Okay. Could you say what you mean by the internationalization of the media? Um, well, the, you know, the, the birth of the whole CNN 24-hour news phenomenon where they attempt or try to cover the world and portray the world through, through their networks. And then we've had um, well, Fox News, Al Jazeera International, and all these other well, sky being launched. And, and these are the prisms through which the public view international relations. What is the impact that will have? And democratization, I would imagine, I, I sort of mean the blog phenomenon, if you like, the you know, sort of journalist on the fly. I, first of all, with satellite TV, with, and with the internet and all the other things, we simply don't know what the effects are going to be. I think, nor do we know what the effects are going to be on the students of generation who come here who may not want to read books uh, or who may have a different way of appropriating knowledge. I mean, clearly, 10 years ago, most of us, we didn't have to be very fuddy-duddy to refuse to admit websites as legitimate footnotes in the master's dissertations. Now we do, provided they're properly sourced and dated and all the rest of it. Um, depending on what the subject is. But these changes are very rapid and we simply don't know. One, I have to say, I'm going to be very improper, saying one utterly nefarious, uh, there are two dreadful nefarious trends in recent years. One is the Harvard indexing system, which is a barbarity, and the other is PowerPoint. People give presentations on PowerPoints, they don't listen to the speaker. 
we'll be going to the theatre in five years' time. People, come on, you know, to be or not to be, and the words will be up there, and you won't look at the actor. <laughs> Teaching is part of it, is theatre, except we have to invent our own lines as well as act. It's a tougher job. So, um, <laughs> and so, so I think, so I think we have to be sceptical or trying to put, to put it in more positive terms, appropriate these technologies, like film and all the rest of it, but for positive purposes. On the question of the television stations, first of all, I notice, and you will have noticed, that they have their waves and then they fall out of fashion. CNN made its name over the Kuwait War of the early 90s and then later over some of the incidents in Iraq. But it's now slipping backwards. I work very happily with CNN. I enjoy working with CNN. Uh, I was on camera on and off for about 16 hours recently outside the Audiencia Nacional, the courthouse in Madrid, where they were trying the terrorists. And it was amazing. The first few hours I was controlled by the desk in London. Then I was controlled by the anchor in Hong Kong, who turned out to be an LSE alumna. And then by um, Atlanta, Georgia. So we were kind of shunted around the world uh, in the process of commenting on these issues. I am properly used, they can have very positive effects. But A, I've sat in hotel rooms trying to watch this stuff. And after two hours, it's dull as ditch water and very, very superficial. Secondly, they have political agendas. Fox News certainly does. And they refer to CNN as Chicken News International, I think, or something like that. Um, but also so does Al Jazeera. I find it unfortunate that nice people know something about the Middle East, write books or articles saying Al Jazeera is the new voice of Arab civil society and so on. It's rubbish. I've been in Al Jazeera. I, my Arabic is wonderful, but I can hold my own in a shouting match for an hour. And I've done it, and I'll do it again on Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is not a liberal civil society station. It is the television station of one very rich man, the Emir of Qatar. Either more or less, he's a decent guy. I've met him. When he was in London in the 60s, he was a biker. He used to look around in a leather jacket. Um, but the fact is that it is not a liberal station. There are whole areas which are off target. You're not allowed to mention finances, treatment of migrant workers, treatment of women, treatment of gays, all this stuff, forget it. Um, and now, because he's done a deal with the Saudis, because he's afraid of Iran, all the criticism of Saudi Arabia has stopped. Uh, I know a lot about what goes on inside Al Jazeera, about the English and the Arabic session. The Arabic session has increasingly been taken over by Muslim brothers from North Africa, because this is what they want to calm down their own population because Qatar is also the base for the largest U.S. Air Force and CIA stations in the Middle East, so they have to balance it. So, yes, they have slangy matches and so forth, but this is not a liberal, so there is not a single newspaper, there is not a single television station in the Arab world which is not controlled by a state or by close relatives of the ruler. Not one. And you have to be realistic about this. And therefore, they do not contribute necessarily to democratization. They can stir things up. That really doesn't get you very far. So yes, there is more information, but this is not an educational and, in my view, democratically oriented process. Having said which, certainly compared to the wooden programs, which are often there, so much the better. But the broader answer is I simply don't know. We don't know what the long-term effects of these changes are. Okay. Uh, the gentleman here, I think, is called Professor Christopher Hill of Cambridge. You used to be here once upon a time many years ago. Indeed. I had the, Over to you. had the tremendous privilege of being a colleague of Fred's for... Uh, more years than I care to remember, and very invigorating it was. And on the last, his answer to the last question, I think everybody here, Fred, would say you give great theatre, actually, as a, as a lecturer. But my question uh, is that relates to your title. I, when I first saw the title of this lecture, I misread it, Speed Reading. 
as the post-heroic age? And uh, I think that's also an interesting question. Um, we hear a lot these days about anti-foundationalism and so on. And I will, I'm not thinking so much about heroes as individuals. All of them turn out to have feet of clay anyway, probably except Mandela. Uh, John Kennedy certainly is an example which has been resurrected recently, which uh, perhaps could have been avoided. But um, thinking more of ideas... Uh, I mean, the 20th century was certainly associated with heroic ideas, communism, nationalism, liberalism, and the like. Maybe democratization is the last fling of the heroic age of ideas. Certainly, it seems to me that globalization doesn't quite have the same ring. What do you think about that? I began, thank you, first of all, and Chris Hill was my distinguished, very distinguished predecessor as Montague Burton, Professor of International Relations and I stand on his shoulders in this as in other matters. Um, now answer the question. <laughs> I began by saying that ideas are exciting. And I think that's the most important thing I want people to remember what I've said and also the experience of being at LSE. And when I travel the world, I've been in Beijing, I've been in Bogota, I've been in Chicago, I've been in various Sudan, all places. And people talk about having been at LSE. The first thing they say is compared to being at LSE, I'm bored. They don't just mean the three tons of the right spiral. They mean ideas being challenged. And I think that's something which we must sustain. But however, I think there is a lack of interesting intellectual debate in the world today. And I can give you many examples. The fact that on television there are no more debates like we used to have with Michael Ignatieff in, 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 uh, debating with philosophers as you had 20 years ago. Sorry, this bookshop here is a bookshop for a seaside resort. Half the windows are full of novels. It's a disgrace that the bookshop of the leading university of science university in the world should be like this, run by people selling novels and diet books, three for two diet books. Fine, but not, shouldn't be, shouldn't be, yes. And how many books, how many books in foreign languages do they have? In Barcelona, my university, my, the bookshop next to where I work, Central, has books in six languages. And they have staff who can instruct you in this. I get books. And here, this is, the, 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 television news, hombre, let's not go into all of that. So I think there is, but then it comes to something that Chris has worked in Italy and I worked in Spain, worked here. How many people are there writing in the press today who when you open the papers you say, well, I'm going to read that person. How many people are there? Umberto Eco, yes, but he repeats himself, but I like it. Um, Simon Jenkins on a good day. Boris, no. I've known him since he was a baby. I don't want to hear him again. Thank you very much. Um, but how many, Martin Woolacott has gone. There are very few people writing anywhere in Europe or the U.S. state who are really, really worth reading. Very, very few. And then we come to the university. Clearly, uh, we have a very vibrant intellectual situation here. But for all the reasons we know, the pressures of managerialism, of filling in forms, but also a certain, may I say, intellectual risk aversion, which my generation, Chris is younger than me, but his generation too, had... Uh, we, we weren't so oppressed by it. There is an intellectual risk of action. Oh, I mustn't say this theory, I mustn't say this theory, I mustn't say this theory. There aren't people who speak out clearly enough. There aren't people who take enough risks. Uh, there are a lot of people who do gestural alternative politics, talking about post-foundationalist voices here and non-Western voices. They don't know anything about non-Western societies. They all want equality and independence and justice like anyone else, but they don't realize that. Um, and people of quality... Let me mention my great hero in LSE, Ernest Gellner, who was professor of philosophy, or professor of anthropology, professor uh, uh, in the sociology department. He once went, he went to Russia in the late 80s. 
And he came back and he stood right here with Mick and I standing. And he gave a lecture on nationalism in the Soviet Union. And he got up and remember what he said. He said, nationalism in the Soviet Union, I can tell you what it is, he said. In Russia, they hate the Jews. In the Baltic states, they hate the Russians. In the Caucasus, they hate each other. And in Central Asia, they hate whoever the mafia told them to hate. And you could have given somebody $20 million research grant, and they wouldn't have come up with such a <laughs> I remember once inviting here the very interesting, and I admire him, French writer, Regis Debray. And in those days, we had a seminar in French. It was quite, it was quite normal. And uh, he talked about the role of religion in politics and how there was a hidden God and religion was beneath modern radical politics and all of that. And Gellner sat in the front row and he said, Bah, I said, do Don Durkheim. It's all in Durkheim. But then Eric Hobsbawm was at the back and he asked the most pointed question I've ever heard in an academic question. Because Debray going on about the hidden God and all modern politics was millenarian and Christian. He said, Monsieur Debray, où est le Dieu caché dans l'Empire Chinois? Where is the hidden God in the Chinese Empire? And Debray, of course, is a smart guy, had, you know, couldn't say anything. But these were serious, uh, historically informed and culturally diverse discussions. Um, I particularly value, and this is a cue for a little bit of my speech I didn't get under now, those people, not the people who have gone about tradition and correctness and the nation and the market, for heaven's sake, which is all banal and material. And there's too much groveling to all these things going on, universities and elsewhere. But those people who come out of a culture and out of experience, but who then criticize and who are independent. Uh, I mentioned um, Gellner. I mentioned Antonio Gramsci. I mentioned Karl Polanyi, whose great work critiqued the inevitability of markets and showed the historicity of markets. Simon de Beauvoir, Socrates, Ibn Khaldun. These are people, just, these are people who are critical, who are learned, but who are independent and who challenge the inevitability they given us, the God given us, as we used to say, the facticity of these things. And to me, those, this is what we need more of. And not all this sort of kowtowing and, and benchmarks and all this stuff and so on. The world's full of benchmarks. Uh, but it's, and, and no cross lines. We need, we need more of that. So and that worries me, but I don't have an easy answer. Okay. I think I'll take just one more. Uh, there's a gentleman up here. Okay. I've got to say something. Yeah, okay. If you can make it brief, uh, and then we'll. Fred has an addition. Small addition. Small addition after this. But if you could ask the question. Yeah. Um, um, in, in the post hegemonic age, uh, what do you think will be the importance uh, of states and non state actors trying to acquire nuclear weapons? Uh, because uh, we keep hearing about uh, Iran's program and, uh, and so on. And also non state actors like the Al Qaeda. They may, um, what, do you think, uh, the, what do you think is the importance of this? So, so there, there are a whole number of issues which come up in international relations, which to answer properly, you have to have a serious professional background. I remember we had in our department for some years Ian Rowlands, a Canadian scholar, who had been a microbiologist, and therefore his writings on the environment had a weight and a conviction which they, others wouldn't have. I remember I had a student who did a fantastic master's dissertation on the politics and engineering of cruise missiles. American guy. I said, how come you know? He said, I made cruise missiles for six years before I came to NSC. Um, and in regard to, to nuclear weapons, I, I, having been fooled all of us so many times, I always say about the Iranians or anyone else, as far as the reality is concerned, I'm not a spy and I'm not an engineer. And I, so I, I cannot decide, for example, what have they got, how long are they going to get it, because I'm sure they're all lying. 
What I can make is a political judgment, and it's a political judgment informed by, to me, one of the most interesting lessons of the Cold War. Why did the nuclear arms race, why did Russia and America acquire 50,000 missile heads each, warheads each? Why did they go on when they could have destroyed each other? Many times? What was the logic of this? It wasn't a military logic. It was a political logic, the political logic of superiority giving you prestige and dominance. And secondly, and very importantly, if you have nuclear weapons and there is a crisis in your region, as there was in Cuba in 1962, or there is now in Iraq, it gives you an added leverage. It gives you an added prestige and strength in the crisis. So if Iran is pursuing nuclear weapons, and I assume in some way it is, if only to get to what's called nuclear ambiguity, it's because it's surrounded by crises. It wants its influence to be greater, uh, and it wants to keep everyone else guessing. But the, you have to, you can't, the term nuclear proliferation is a ridiculous term. This implies it's sort of a disease or it's a criminal act. It's about politics. It's about national prestige. It's about state interest. And I assume as long as the world is unstable, this will continue. Okay. Thank you very much, Fred. Before we move to vote, thanks to Fred and to you. Fred, you wanted to do something else. Yes, I wanted to say, which I is I, I, this very quickly. Yes. Hold on. Don't go. No, no, no. Okay, Fred. I, um, it's the first time he's ever done this in public. I, he told me. It's, it's uh, track number nine. Okay. I have many regrets as a teacher. Where do we put it? And two of them I mentioned now. One of them is not having the courage of my convictions with regard to saying certain things about theory and history of ideas. Once standing on this platform with the undergraduates in the late 80s, it's a week after the death of the great French historian and theorist Fernand Braudel. Now, my predecessor in this job, Michael Banks, always told people about scholars or intellectuals or writers who died as he began the lecture. And I got up and I lost my nerve. I didn't talk about Bradell, and I didn't talk about his three concepts of time, and I didn't talk about his belief in the importance of the environment. He was once asked, who are the actors of history? And he said, estuaries. Uh, and why did the Roman Empire fall? Because of the failure of the reigns of Mongolia. So he was an early ecological historian. His great book, of course, is the age of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean, the age of Philip II. Uh, and I always regret In other cases, not having... Como dizia o poeta... This, the other thing is that I didn't... I, I'm never going to use PowerPoint again. <laughs> uh, We got that. I also... Uh, the many things I've done. I do regret not using music, not using film or lectures. This is a song which I like very much. It's by a Brazilian diplomat and musician called Vinicius de Moraes. The most famous song is called La Copa de Mosa. This is a song about uh, how he met. He begins by saying, he's speaking Spanish with a lovely Brazilian accent. He says, Como dice poeta, as the poet says, which is the name of the song, has three composers myself, my friend Topinho, and a third composer who died 300 years ago, uh, the composer Tomas Alvinoni. So I think this should be our attitude towards classical theory, what so Chris Brown and I and other people teach. We should take it and be appropriate. And he says, I think that Albinoni will be very happy in his tomb to know that we are repopularizing his music today, 300 years after he died, remaining completely faithful to the structure, the structure of his music. And then, what, then he plays, of course, he begins with a little bit of Baroque music and then off goes the samba. And I think that's what we should do with the past. We should take it like he took Albinoni, we should remain faithful to the structure of the Stacanthus, the Marx, and all these people but get on with it and use it for the future. So now, where do I press?
<laughs> we know you can't. Well, I don't even know which machine. Which which machine am I looking at? What? You said you were going to help me. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see you do a PowerPoint lecture. Okay. 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 Un tercero compañero de trabajo, un tercero tercero como llamamos nosotros, que es un músico que ya se murió como a tres ciclos, el gran Tomás Albinoni. Fue usado un tema de Albinoni que toqué yo, llegamos a este samba y me gusta sentir que Albinoni debe estar muy contento en su tumba, ¿no? De saber que lo popularizamos así a través de ese samba sin cambiar en, absol en absoluto la estructura de su música que ya pasó por esa que no vive puede ser más menos do que porque a vida es Pra quem se deu, pra quem amou, pra quem chorou, pra quem sofreu, quem nunca curtiu uma paixão, nunca vai ter nada não, quem nunca curtiu uma paixão, nunca vai ter nada não, não há mal pior do que a dispensa, mesmo amor que não é melhor que a solidão Abre os teus braços, meu irmão Deixa cair Pra que somasse a gente pode dividir Eu francamente já não quero nem saber model of class, loyalty to classical theory and to the great classical theory. But also, the message is very important in life and in ideas. Those who have not suffered passion, now, now, don't have anything. And it goes, love in life, all of this, but also in ideas. If you haven't worked hard, if you haven't studied, if you, don't, you don't get anywhere. And that's why this is also a song I like very much. So in, when I'm reincarnated as I.G. Patel, Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Is that what? Yeah. 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 Yeah